Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and welcome to Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast, where today we're going to talk about the Book of Ruth and 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 3. And we have special thanks today to Diana Webb, who is the author of Biblical Lionesses, Protector of the Covenant, and Forgotten Women of God, who's provided notes and research to make this podcast possible today. Now, Ruth is a happy interlude in these chapters. It's not a story of a prophet, a war, or a dramatic intervention by the Lord, but it's a family story, a private story in some ways, but it's the family story of the family of the Savior. And we love it because we are seeing really good people who are living the covenant at work. So this is a book that brings us joy. We see at the outset something that people all through the scriptures are faced with. And we are faced with it in our time as well. And that's battling the climate. And this interaction with the Lord in receiving rain for the lands that the people are in, this is critical for them to be able to survive. So in this story, due to a famine, Elimelech sells his land and he leaves Bethlehem and he goes to Moab. Now, I think in order to understand this, you have to understand the lands that are east of Judah, the lands that are on the other side of the Dead Sea, the other side of the River Jordan. There are three lands in a row, and one of them on the north is Ammon, and then in the middle is Moab, and at the south is Edom. Now, the land of Ammon is for the people who had descended from Ben-Ami, who is the son of Lot by his younger daughter. And then the land of Moab are the descendants of Moab, who is the son of Lot through his older daughter. And Edom is the land of Esau, who is the twin brother of Jacob. So that gives you a sense of those tribes. And everything in the Middle East is tribal. Whenever we go to the Middle East, we're always talking about tribes. And we were just in Jordan a few days ago, and Jordan is very tribal to this day. And people look at each other as to their tribes. So the sons of Elimelech take wives of the daughters of Moab. So they both marry Moabitish women. And one of those women that plays, of course, heavily into our story is Ruth, who is a Moabitish woman. And this famine became so strong in the land that Elimelech dies and then his two sons die. And so Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and they're caught in a very, very difficult situation because women who are single in that culture are the most vulnerable of all. Yes, to be a childless widow was to be among the lowest, most disadvantaged class in the ancient world. There was no one to support you, and you had to live on the generosity of strangers. Naomi had no family in Moab and no one else to help her. It was a desperate situation. From distant Moab, Naomi heard that God was doing good things back in Israel, that they had food to eat. And she tells her daughters-in-law that they can stay there in Moab. She believed that her difficulty in life is that she had left her people. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she says. Perhaps she wondered if she had sinned by going to Moab. She's not bitter, but she had no idea 
not the slightest of how greatly God was going to bless her in just a short time. And we see in Ruth chapter 1, in verses 14 and 15, as they're making this decision to part, that they lifted up their voice and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Now, this part I have studied a lot, and as I prayed about all this, I've seen something that I've never seen before, and that is this parting where Orpah returns to Moab and to her people and to her gods. Now, what does that mean? Because who were the gods in Moab? Well, I was studying this, and there are three main gods in Moab. One of them is Chemish. And Chemish, that's another name for seducer. He was their national deity, and he had a lot of influence. Now, when I say he, there really isn't anyone. I always laugh at these idol gods because they are just made up. But people get very serious about worshiping them. And so this Chemish had spread all the way to Jerusalem and in other lands in that area, and he was a very feared god. But there was also the god of Moloch, and Moloch was a fire god. He was this kind of the same as Chemish, but his head was that of a calf, and he had his arms outstretched. And in those arms, they would place their children and sacrifice them. So Moloch was this horrible god, and he too had been carried clear over to Jerusalem and other parts of that land in the Middle East. And then there was a third god, Baal Peor, and he was uh, connected to licentious rites. And he was a male divinity, and sometimes he was looked upon as the sun, and Ashtaroth was the female deity, and or Jupiter and Venus, and they were also worshipped. So when Orpah made that choice to go back to Moab and to her gods, uh, this means that she made a choice that would last for her whole life, that would keep her away from the true God. And that makes it more powerful when Ruth says, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. And where thou diest will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. So this choice of these two women is major, and it will also change the whole course of history. And it's this expression of loyalty from Ruth that is really breathtaking, and she is choosing Jehovah. Obviously, she's heard enough about it from Naomi, maybe from her husband, that she realizes she is choosing another god, and in fact, he will bless her. So they go back to Bethlehem, and Naomi says, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. In Hebrew, Naomi means sweet or pleasant, but Mara means bitter. This reply was not an accusation, only Naomi's way of saying that she had endured much tragedy while in Moab. They arrive back in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Elimelech had a wealthy kinsman named Boaz, and his name can be translated as mighty man of valor. The word kinsman means more than a relative. He is a kinsman redeemer, a special family representative 
to help secure the family, especially these vulnerable ones, these widows who are coming. I think it's very significant that the name Bethlehem in Hebrew, Bethlehem, means house of bread. In the Arabic, it means house of flesh, but either way, it's a house where there is food, a house where there is nourishment. And this plays into the story. Ruth begins gleaning in Boaz's fields. Now, what is gleaning? Young men moved through the fields, grasping handfuls of the grain and cutting through the stalks with sickles. And these small bunches of grain were then bound into bundles called sheaves. You all understand that part. But as the men worked rapidly, a number of the stalks would fall to the ground. And if the men were careful and took the time, these too could be gathered up and put in with the sheaves. However, any stalks that dropped were allowed to remain where they fell. So in Leviticus chapter 19, the farmers were commanded in Israel that they should not completely harvest their fields. They were commanded to cut the corners in harvesting and always leave some behind. Also, if they happened to drop a bundle of grain, they were commanded to leave it on the ground and to not pick it up. This was one of the social assistance programs, if you will, in Israel. So poor people, following the reapers, were permitted to glean or gather the random stalks, possibly all that stood between them and starvation. So in addition, the edges of the field where the sickle was not as easily wielded, were left unharvested. So this left food for the poor. I think it's a wonderful program. It is. It's a wonderful way to provide for the poor. And think about it. The farmers would have a generous heart, and workers provide for themselves with dignity. Boaz tells Ruth she need not glean in any other field. He tells the men not to touch her. He invites her to share their water vessel and to dine with the other workers. He tells her to stay close to the other women who are reaping. In other words, he begins to watch out for her and to watch and see who she is. Obviously, he is impressed with her work ethic and her generosity. And when he offers all of this, obviously Boaz is favoring Ruth. So in chapter 2, verse 10, Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes, that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? That's basically saying, how is it that you're seeing me? I'm a nobody. I'm the least of all these. And he recognizes her. And Boaz answered and said unto her in verse 11, It hath fully been shewed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knewest not heretofore. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for that thou hast comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaids. I'm so impressed that he noticed that she had been kind to her mother-in-law. I'm so impressed that that's the kind of woman Ruth is, and this is the kind of man that Boaz is. We are now looking at righteous people, and that is such a relief after we see so many people chasing after idolatrous gods. 
I think it's fun, Maureen. We were just in Bethlehem a few weeks ago, you and I, with a group. And one of the first things that our Palestinian guide, who was born and raised in that area, said to us was, this is the land of Ruth and Boaz. And they speak about that to this day. It is something that impresses them, that is impressed upon their souls to this day, that they talk of Ruth and Boaz. And why has she found favor in his eyes? She doesn't complain about all the hard things that have happened to her, but is grateful, even awestruck, by this good thing that he will let her glean. When she eats with the workers, she sits next to Boaz and then keeps some back, some of the food back, to take to Naomi so that she might have something to eat. Isn't that small gesture so important? And it's interesting. Ruth reported on her work that day and told Naomi that she had worked with Boaz that day, and then she said, Blessed be the name of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. This is Naomi speaking. Now remember, just a few verses earlier when they returned to Bethlehem, she said, Call me Mara. Bitterness, I have been um, misused by the Lord. I have been forgotten by the Lord. And now she feels to bless his name. Is this the same woman who came into town saying, Call me Mara? Is this the same woman who said, The Almighty hath afflicted me? Now she sees more of God's plan unfolding, and she can see better how all things are working together for good for those who love God. It is good, my daughter. So Naomi wants to change her fortune, and Naomi's going to help her faithful daughter-in-law secure a husband and family. She knew that Ruth could best be taken care of if she was married, so she suggested that she appeal to Boaz for marriage. The Hebrew word for security, manawach, in verse 1 is the same word for rest in Ruth 1.9, where Naomi hoped that her daughters-in-law would find rest and security in the home of a new husband. This Hebrew word, manawach, speaks of what a home should be, a place of rest and security. And she's trying to help Ruth find this here under the wings of Boaz. Now, Naomi's suggestion to Ruth was rooted in a peculiar custom in ancient Israel. The meaning behind the Hebrew word goel, that's spelled G-O-E-L. The goel, sometimes translated kinsman redeemer, had a specifically defined role in Israel's family life. The kinsman redeemer was responsible to buy a fellow Israelite out of slavery. Well, he was also responsible to be the avenger of blood to make sure the murderer of a family member answered to the crime. He was responsible to buy back family land that had been forfeited, and remember, Elimelech had sold his property. And he was responsible to carry on the family name by marrying a childless widow. In this, we see that the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, was responsible to safeguard the persons, property, and the posterity of the family. Since Boaz was a recognized Goel for the family of Elimelech, the deceased husband of Naomi and father-in-law of Ruth, Ruth could appeal to him to safeguard the posterity of Elimelech's family and take her in marriage. It may seem forward to us, but it was regarded as proper in that day. 
If Boaz did not fulfill this duty towards Elimelech, though he was now deceased, then the direct family name and the name of Elimelech would perish. The word here rendered redeemer, we translate literally from Hebrew goel, and this is its proper translation. It is rendered merely kinsman in the King James Version, but the function of a goel was to make it possible for a widow who had lost home and property to return to her former status and security and to have seed to perpetuate her family. It is easy to see why the later prophets borrowed this word from the social laws of Israel and used it to describe the functions of him who would become the divine redeemer. Think of what he does to restore us to proper status with God and to give us future security and eternal seed. That is just remarkable. I am in awe when I think about it. So Naomi instructs Ruth to make herself pretty and smelling good, anoint yourself, put on your best garment, she says, and to leave Boaz alone while he ate. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. At the appropriate time, Naomi instructs Ruth to go in, uncover his feet, and lie down. In the culture of that day, this was understood as an act of total submission. In that day, she was understood to be in the role of a servant, to lay at their master's feet and be ready for any command of the master. So when Naomi told Ruth to lie down at Boaz's feet, She told her to come to him in a totally humble, submissive way. And she was basically saying to Boaz, I respect you, I trust you, and I put my fate in your hands. This is such a symbol of us coming to the feet of the Savior. We want to come to him, to lay at his feet, and to submit ourselves completely to him. It's the same type and symbol here. So, there was a good reason why Boaz slept at the threshing floor, because these were in the days of the judges when there was much political and social instability in Israel, and it wasn't unusual for gangs of thieves to come and steal all the hard-earned grain a farmer had grown. In verse 9 of chapter 3, Boaz said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth thy handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. So basically she is submitting herself to him and calling upon him to spread his skirt over her, which is the same as a cloak, or putting his cloak around her and providing protection, care, and actually marrying her as a wife. Another use of the word is wing. It is take me under your wing, and that means protect me. And now, my daughter, fear not, he says, I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. He would be acting as a kinsman redeemer, a goel for her. The only hitch is that there is a closer relative, but this relative chose not to perform the duty. Remember, he had the duty to protect the person's property and posterity, but this closer relative wanted the land, but not the extra duties. Boaz said to the elders and all the people in Ruth chapter 4 verses 9 and 10 that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of this place, and so he would take Ruth unto him as his wife. 
Boaz will be a kinsman redeemer, just as the Lord is to us. Well, this establishes such a wonderful pattern and model for marriage. First, the love of God for Israel is mirrored in the love of a husband and a wife. The married couple are supported and are part of a larger constellation of kinsfolk and family obligation and love. This is solid and foundational in contrast to our contemporary dating culture, which is about attraction, which may come and go. In fact, we were just in Jordan, and in Jordan, when you ask about a person's family, they say, oh, they're doing well, and, but their family means something much larger than what we say. Their family is their uncles, their aunts, their grandparents, their children, their grandchildren. And in many cases, they all live in one house, and they leave the upper story of the house so that they can build another floor for the upcoming generation. And then they leave that with another floor so they can build for the generation beyond that. Family is extended family, and it's everything to them. A cousin might be called a sister just because they are part of the family. And it's assumed that marriage will include the non-negotiable opportunity to create offspring. And there's a temple undertone in this whole story as well. So, Jeffrey Bradshaw quotes a Catholic scholar, Gary A. Anderson. He mentions two elements of the temple undertone that pervade this deeply spiritual book. First, he explains the significance of the fact that Boaz, the name of our hero, also happens to be the name of one of the two pillars that sat athwart the entryway of the temple in Jerusalem. Then he connects this temple allusion to the later incident at the threshing floor where Ruth asked Boaz to spread his robe over her. In his discussion of Ruth's request, Anderson points out the importance of the fact that the word for robe in Hebrew happens to be the exact same word as wing. This remarkable wordplay carries us back to Boaz's blessing in chapter 2. May you have a full recompense from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have sought refuge. Taken together, Anderson's observations make it clear that the plotline of the story of Ruth takes us on a journey from the gate of the temple, where the pillar of Boaz stands, to the Holy of Holies, where two cherubim stretch forth their wings on high to cover the mercy seat. And if you can't quite envision the Ark of the Covenant, you have to remember that there are two cherubim with these long wings that are stretched across toward each other. So Jeffrey Bradshaw continues, God commanded Moses to craft the cherubim on the arks so that their faces shall look one to another. In rabbinic literature, they are understood as being a boy and a girl, a man and a woman. Similarly, Boaz and Ruth as a couple are described in biblical Hebrew as perfectly self-similar reflections, a man of worth and a worthy woman. Bradshaw said, However, I would argue with Anderson that the most important result of the individual development of Boaz and Ruth in the story is not their single-minded devotion to one another, but rather the achievement of joint purpose in their wholehearted effort to fulfill the terms of their covenant relationship with God and their neighbors. This is so powerful. This is a story of loyalty as one of the primary aspects of the covenant, God's loyalty to us and ours to him, so much that he would perform the atonement to make us at one again. This is unflinching loyalty, 
born from allegiance to God, which then becomes allegiance to one another in one another's marriages, in our covenantal families, in our covenantal communities. In a covenantal marriage in the temple, we kneel across an altar representing the altar of sacrifice because it is the Lord's atonement that can make us one. This is so beautiful. In our own marriages, we become one through looking together toward God as well as looking to each other. We have such a happy marriage, Maureen. We joke all the time that when I am with you, I am beside myself. We would both credit this undying love and loyalty we have to each other because of our love for God. And I remember, Scott, when I first met you, I'd been having a hard time, and I I felt the absence of God in my life. I didn't feel blessings flowing. And I told you, I just don't think God loves me. And you said, God sent me into your life to tell you that he loves you. God has been the very center of our marriage. How many thousands of times have we prayed together, pouring out our hearts to him? How could I know you better when I have heard your thousand, thousand heartfelt prayers to God? How many times have we together seen God's hand in our lives in small ways and big ways? How many times have we lingered in the car after church so we can talk about what we've learned today or the sweet spirit of assurance we have felt? We always call our car our soundproof booth because there we can talk about all these things, all the wonderful things that we've experienced with the Lord. God fills our heart and teaches us day by day how to love each other better, how to build you and how to affirm the goodness I see in you, and vice versa. My job is to really see you and know who you are, no matter how you are feeling on any given day. A covenant marriage includes God at the very center, and as you give your heart to Him and are loyal to Him, so you do the same for your spouse. God teaches you love and loyalty and fills your relationship with light. The Book of Ruth is not only a primer on marriage, but it also teaches something about the family history of Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate kinsman-redeemer. We, like Ruth, are in vulnerable positions. But like Boaz, there is one who comes in to secure our position with God, to bring us home, to make a safe harbor for us, to watch out for us when we are stricken. Boaz and Ruth give birth to Obed, who is the father of Jesse, who is the father of David, who will become the king of all Israel and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. And I think it's significant that when Matthew, in chapter 1, gives the genealogy of Christ, he only mentions four women, but Ruth is one of them. And it's interesting that in Matthew 1, Boaz is listed as the son of Rahab, and we think of her as the woman in Jericho who saved the spies and made it possible for them to come into and conquer Jericho. So there is a, a very strong family line here that leads right to Christ. Now, we have another wonderful story of loyalty in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 3. And again, thank you so much to Diana Webb for her wonderful thoughts. She said, Hannah's story is one of quiet catastrophe the catastrophe of empty arms, the oft-repeated and almost stereotypical catastrophe of barrenness and infertility. 
It is not a catastrophe to be compared with the destruction of the temple or the capture of the Ark of the Covenant, but to Hannah, childlessness is calamity. And it doesn't end there. Her husband's second wife, Penina, maliciously throws salt on her raw wound and taunts her. Well, the taunting is almost daily, according to the pseudepigraphical book called Biblical Antiquities, written sometime between the mid-first century and mid-second century A.D. This is not scripture, but paints a picture. Hannah is the beloved wife of her husband, Elkanah, but is barren, while Penina has given him ten sons. In Biblical Antiquities, Penina ridicules Hannah by saying, Why does it profit you that Elkanah, your husband, loves you? For you are a dry tree, and I know that my husband will love me because he delights in the sight of my sons standing around him like a plantation of olive trees. Barrenness is a torment, and each month a renewed disappointment and a dashing of hopes. And her adversary, Benina, also provoked her sore for to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Let me just say a word about the house of the Lord. We are talking about the tabernacle that went with them through the wilderness and now is placed in Shiloh. This is not yet the temple in Jerusalem. That's correct. So that's an important thing to note. So, Elkanah discerned that Hannah was distressed. Her husband said to her, Hannah, why weepest thou, and why eatest thou not, and why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? He is not childless, but she is, and he cannot give her what she yearns for. Diana Webb said, although she easily could feel that God had abandoned her, it's clear from her prayer that she has not abandoned God. Hannah is a model of devotion, worthy of emulation for her patient faith in the surety of God's benevolence. At the house of Shiloh, in other words, the tabernacle, she wept and prayed. And we learn in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. This is the first prayer of a woman recorded in the Old Testament. Eli, seeing her lips move, but not hearing her speak, assumed she must be drunken because it was the time of a feast where this was common. She assured him she was not, but praying to the Lord. And Eli said, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. So Samuel is born, and she will take him to the temple at age two when he is weaned. Imagine this woman who has longed for so many years and had empty arms, giving up her son to the temple and dedicating him to God's service for life. She will carry out the promise she made to God no matter what it costs her. When she returned home, the silence in her home without her baby Samuel must have been painful. She has given away her most prized possession. Who could be joyful in these circumstances? In 1 Samuel chapter 2, she begins with a song. 
And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoiceth in the Lord. Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. And that word horn means my strength. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. There is none holy as the Lord, for there is none beside thee. Neither is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. This echoes truly the song that is remembered by Mary later on when she comes to Elizabeth and she gives this amazing series of verses that she says with a rejoicing as well. Hannah understands something. She lives in a world where nothing is beyond the reach of God's reign. She realizes that just because she is a child of God, she will not be spared the painful side of life. She knows that suffering has come close to knocking her off her feet, despite the enormity of her faith. She is assaulted by doubt, depression, and fear. She realizes that God uses the hard experiences of life to make us strong. Her own words assert that they that stumbled are girded with strength. Could Hannah have any understanding of who her son would be, this Samuel who would grow up as the Lord's? The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. He represented in the Old Testament in every role of leadership open to a Jewish man of his day, seer, priest, judge, prophet, and military leader. So let's turn briefly to 1 Samuel 3 and his calling. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. That says a lot, doesn't it? Right there. When there is no open vision, things have changed. Now, why? And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place, and his eyes began to wax dim, that he could not see. Now you wonder, is this a metaphor for loss of spiritual vision and understanding? Eli's blindness reflects not only his decrepitude, but also his incapacity for vision. He is immersed in permanent darkness, while the lad Samuel has God's lamp burning by his bedside. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep, God's lamp has not yet gone out, and the young ministrant will be the one to make it burn bright again. That the Lord called Samuel, and he answered, Here am I. And he ran unto Eli and said, Here am I, for thou callest me. And he said, I called not, lie down again. And he went and lay down. The Lord called Samuel. Though Eli and Samuel both slept in the tabernacle, only Samuel heard the Lord's voice that night. And the Lord called yet again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And he answered, I called not, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here am I, for thou didst call me. And Eli perceived 
that the Lord had called the child. Therefore Eli said unto Samuel, Go, lie down, and it shall be, if he call thee, that thou shalt say, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel answered, Speak, for thy servant heareth. And the Lord came and stood. And this is a very physical description of the Lord coming and standing by the side of Samuel. It's very, very tender and very, very real. When Samuel answers, Here am I, this is a covenant phrase. The Lord says it to us. It means loving kindness. It means I will be there for you. I will respond when you call and look how Samuel does. And this idea of here am I, we see all through the scriptures. In Abraham, chapter 2, verse 27, And the Lord said, Whom shall I send? And one answered like unto the Son of Man, Here am I, send me. And Isaiah 58, 9, Then shalt thou call, and the Lord shall answer, thou shalt cry, and he shall say, Here I am. The phrase, Here am I, goes both ways. The Lord says it to us when he volunteers to come and take upon himself this mighty atonement. But we also say it to him because we have a special relationship with him, and we know that if he asks us, we respond willingly and without hesitation and say, here am I. It means we are in this relationship of love and we are someone that each can count on. And so here am I is this beautiful phrase that occurs again and again. It is Abraham. It is Jacob. It is Joseph. It is Isaiah and Samuel. What Samuel is asked to do will rekindle some of the spirit in Israel. And this will be very necessary because as we learn in these chapters, Eli's sons have disrespected their role with the tabernacle there. And Eli has failed to reprimand them and the Lord withdraws from those sons this opportunity. And so this is why Eli can no longer receive revelation. So now there is a new leader in Israel and it is Samuel and he will play a mighty and powerful role. That's all for today. This is Scott and Maureen Proctor. We've loved being with you. Next week, we'll be studying 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 10, 13, and 15 through 18. As always, thank you to Paul Cardall for the music that accompanies this podcast, and thanks to Michaela Proctor Hutchins for producing these podcasts. See you next time, and have a great week.